It's awesome. I love it. I love baptisms. Love the dubstep music in the background. I'm getting ready to do a concert up here. Oh, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Lane, and I'm the newest lead pastor here. It's so awesome to have Aaron with us this morning. It's such a beautiful thing that even across states and across boundaries and timelines, we still get to be family together. I think it's really, really cool. So thanks, Aaron, for, for being here. Um, today, today is the start of our Lent series that we are calling Questions, Bringing Everything to God. It was a, a joy to celebrate Ash Wednesday with those of you who were able to brave the storm and make it out. Um, but uh, Ash Wednesday signals the beginning of Lent, right, which is the beginning of the 40-day period leading up to Easter. And Lent is traditionally marked with uh, spiritual practices or disciplines like fasting and prayer and repentance and solitude. And ashes are used kind of as this imagery to remind us that without the Spirit of God, we are but dust, right? From ashes to ashes, dust to dust, from dust we came, and to dust we shall return. But in him, with the breath of God, we become fully alive. We become fully human. Ashes have also always been used to kind of um, associate with lament and with grief. We see in the scriptures examples of God using, uh, or God's people using ashes and rubbing them on themselves as an outward expression of their sadness, right? So, so Lent is this season of, of being able to, to practice repentance and lament. So why call the series Questions? Why call it Questions? Well, sometimes we spiritual people, we church-going people, forget that our difficult emotions, that our biggest frustrations, our points of anger, that our tears and our hardest questions can actually be worship unto God. Right? A third of the Psalms in your Bible are Psalms of lament that express grief and sorrow, right? There's an entire book in the Old Testament called Lamentations that's filled with lamentations, right? Even Jesus himself, the Christ, the Messiah, God incarnate, wept at the sight of his friend Lazarus who had died, even though he was going to resurrect him moments later. When Jesus hung on the cross, he asked God a question, and quoted Psalm 22, and he said, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus said that. But if you're anything like me, perhaps your experience with the church is that your questions tend to be a sign of your lack of faith. I don't think churches mean to do this. I think it's completely unintentional. But I think sometimes we create spaces and environments where people are made to feel like if they have big questions, that their faith is somehow less than the people around them. But if this were true, I think we'd have to hold almost half the Bible and Jesus himself to the same scrutiny, right? So we're going to explore what it looks like to bring absolutely everything to God, including our tough questions. Throughout the series, we're going to unpack things like doubt, lament, repentance, grief, and loss. And we're going to close out the series with one of my favorite psalms of lament, Psalm 126. And during this season leading up to Easter, I want to invite you as a church family to enter into a time of fasting and prayer and repentance. Lent is this season where we get to be really intentional about our spiritual formation. Remember we talked about last week, spiritual formation is the way by which we transform our uh, spiritual reflexes. We retrain ourselves, right, to stop reacting to the world and to start responding to God. So whatever fasting looks like for you, whatever you choose to give up, it can be a really powerful time of prayer and reflection as a family. Okay, so what question are we wrestling with today? Today we're going to be talking about doubt. 
doubt. Is it acceptable for a Christian to experience doubt? Can a Jesus follower doubt? And what do I do with my doubt? And for this question, we're actually going to be looking at a story of someone in the Bible who received kind of an unfortunate nickname, the Apostle Thomas, who many of us know as Doubting Thomas. Okay, you know when you see something one way your whole life, and then you learn something that kind of shifts your perspective? I had this moment last year. Now, I've been driving for more than half my life. Some of you are doing the math. I'm 32. And no one ever accused me of knowing a lot about cars, right? Like, I'm the kind of guy that you could tell him, like, Lane, you need to change your blinker fluid, and I'd believe you. Um, (laughs) Just depolarize the flux capacitor. That's really what I know about cars. But I thought that I at least knew the basics, right? Like, left pedal brake, right pedal go, gears, you guys drive, you get it. Well, last year, my wife and I got this rental car because we were traveling, and we went to go put gas in the car at a gas station. At a gas station? No, at a coffee shop. Yes, at a gas station. Well, I couldn't remember what side the fuel door was on. So I was like, hold on, I'm going to get out of the car and see uh, where the fuel door is. And she was like, why are you going to, why? And I was like, because I don't know which side it's on. And she's like, yeah, but why are you getting out of the car? And I was like, because I don't know which side it's on. (laughs) Riveting conversation, right? I'm getting frustrated. And finally, she's like, just look at the fuel gauge. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, the fuel gauge will tell you which side it's on. So I'm looking at the fuel gauge. I'm like, hello, fuel gauge, which side is it on? When I tell you that I was 31 years old when I learned that this arrow tells you which side the fuel gauge is on? Oh, my lanta. Why did no one tell me that? Some of you didn't know, did you? How many of you didn't know? See, I knew it. I'm not alone. Yes. <laughs> okay, that's what we call an overreaction. I'm back. Okay. So many years of getting out of the car, I could have just stayed and looked at the fuel gauge. Well, today is the biblical equivalent of this, right? I'm hoping that we can stop getting out of our spiritual cars, right? Many of us have heard the story of the Apostle Thomas, and we've been told the same thing. That This is a story about a lesson that we shouldn't doubt God and how Thomas was wrong. And we've come to know him as Doubting Thomas, which I actually think is kind of sad because there's a lot we can learn from Thomas. And I think that this story is less about the doubt of Thomas and more about the faithfulness of Jesus. So we're going to go into this story together. John chapter 20. It's going to be on the screen, verses 20 through 24 through 31. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, some of your translations might say twin, one of the, hello, it's for you. One of the, <laughs> sorry, let me start again. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So when the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. I love that. And Jesus said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so we learn that Thomas is not with the twelve when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection. (laughs) Bummer. Anyone else feel like Thomas sometimes? You ever feel like you're the only one that missed out on what God is doing? Right, because the disciples, they come back all excited that Jesus defeated death. It's like coming back, you know, your friends all come back from summer camp, and they're like, God is good, and you're like, whatever, right? The disciples have begun to process how their world has just been turned right side up, that Jesus defeated the grave. But Thomas, he's still stuck in his grief. He's grieving. I think we forget this, right? Thomas, Thomas deeply loved Jesus. It was his teacher, his rabbi, his friend, his Lord. And he just watched him be horribly crucified and humiliated. And as far as he knows, Jesus is still dead. And now, to rub salt in the wood, someone has stolen his body? And in his mind, the other disciples are trying to bypass their grief with their experience. You know, sometimes it feels like all the people around us are having breakthroughs. Like the people around us are all having uh, their, their blessings, but we're stuck in our grief and in our situations, right? How come all my friends are getting married while I'm going through a breakup? How come all my friends seem to be getting the right jobs and making good money and getting the right careers, but I just got laid off and I can't find a job? How come they got healed from their illness, but I'm still stuck with mine? For my wife and I, it was how come all of our friends keep getting pregnant and staying pregnant, and we keep losing babies. Lord, we've had three miscarriages in nine months. When are you going to come through for us? Sometimes we find ourselves in the position of Thomas, right? Jesus, how come everyone else gets to see you, but you're making me wait? And sometimes it feels easier to assume that it's never going to happen rather than try to hope, right? Because unmet hope It's really painful. It's torture. Maybe Thomas didn't want to entertain the idea that Jesus was back because it would be too devastating if it weren't true. You know, while Jana and I were in this season of loss, a couple that we knew, they had just announced their fourth pregnancy. Um, And uh, that was after our second miscarriage. Well, one day after church, um, they had had their baby. We had had our third miscarriage. And I was standing on the stage. I just led worship, and we were all kind of visiting and talking. And um, the, the father, Alex, walked up on stage with his baby. And I made my way over to him, and we were talking. Or we weren't talking. I made, I made my way over to him. And I looked, and I just stared at this beautiful, perfect baby girl. And I just lost it. I started crying. And we didn't exchange any words in that moment, which I'm glad he didn't try to talk me down. In that moment, he just reached out his arm. He just hugged me, let me cry on his shoulder, let me cry all over his baby. (laughs) And I thought, God, when is it going to be me? God, why are you letting us go through this? Have we not been faithful to you? Eventually, I did get to hold our daughter in my arms. And today, uh, (laughs) oh. (laughs) (laughs) today jane and i are the parents of two beautiful children 
earth side, three in heaven, William in Brooklyn, and I get to hold my beautiful, perfect daughter. But here's the thing. We still lost three babies. We rejoiced at each positive pregnancy test, and with each one, we grieved their losses too. We named each one of those babies. And some might say, well, it worked out for them in the end, but we still lost three babies. We still wept and grieved and still sometimes missed those babies even though we never got to see them face to face. And sometimes it does not work out for people in the end, at least the way that people hope it will. We know that God is working together for good, all the things that we go through for the people that love him. We know this. But it doesn't always look the way that we want it to or expect it to. And with each loss, it can get really hard to keep hoping, right? But sometimes God is revealing himself in ways and in timings that are tailored specifically for us. Your journey is not anyone else's journey. Sometimes you're going to be sad when everyone else is happy. That doesn't always mean something's wrong with you. Maybe your story is just going a little bit differently than everyone else's, and guess what? That's okay. That's okay. I would rather have what God has for me in his timing than have what he has for somebody else in mine. So we need to cut Thomas some slack, right? Thomas, like so many of us do, he found himself in grief and sorrow, and he was probably afraid to hope, and maybe even a little bitter that all of his friends had this shared experience that Jesus was making him wait for, right? And here's the thing. The other disciples also needed to see Jesus' scars before they believed that he had resurrected from the dead. They needed that too. That wasn't unique to Thomas. They needed the same things that Thomas did to believe. But some actually might argue that Thomas needs less to believe in his circumstance than the other disciples did. See, Thomas said that he wouldn't believe until he touched Jesus' scars. And Jesus invites him to do this. But Thomas, in the story you notice, he doesn't need to. He didn't actually even reach out and touch his scars. He had divine revelation. He had epiphany. He knew once he heard Jesus' voice and saw his eyes, this is my Jesus. And he knew it was his rabbi, his friend, his Lord. And Jesus never does anything unintentionally. Never. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. John goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus revealed himself to Thomas on the eighth day, right? So in the, it's kind of weird, but in the Hebrew tradition, the eighth day refers to uh, Sunday because Sunday is the first and the last day of a seven-day week. It's the eighth day, and it's this illustration of eternity and all things being restored for circle, full circle. It's the end of one era and stepping into another. The eighth day is kind of the symbol of the beginning of new creation. So we gather on Sundays to kind of preeminently celebrate the resurrection of the saints and the new creation to come. So when Jesus' followers worship together, we're actually practicing eternity together, worshiping on the eighth day of a seven-day week. So it's on this eighth day that Thomas receives the full revelation of Jesus. When the disciples experience this and they tell Thomas, Thomas is then forced to kind of live in this ambiguity, right, of wondering whether or not his friends were completely crazy or if Jesus really had returned. And this is kind of the reality that we find ourselves in today. Thomas is us. Jesus has been revealed, but we haven't seen him, and he is yet to come. Jesus says, you have seen and believed. Blessed are those who do not see 
and yet believe, and that's us. We exist between the first and the eighth day. But like Thomas, the eighth day is coming. The full resurrection of the saints is coming, where God will be fully revealed to us, and on that day, Jesus will invite him to know him, invite us to know him, to see his scars, to see the scars in his feet and his hands and in his side. And like Thomas, we are going to have divine revelation. We will worship Jesus and declare, my Lord and my God. And every question we ever had, any bitterness or pain that we harbor, any sorrow or grief that marks our lives will fade into obscurity as we look into the eyes of Jesus. Everything we've ever gone through on this side of eternity will come into focus. Like it says in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away and he makes everything new. That's what's coming. And some might say, well, yes, but Jesus still tells him to stop doubting and believe. It's right there. Doubting is bad. You know, on the surface level, I would tend to agree with you. But it's interesting. Our English translations suffer a bit in verse 29. When Jesus says, do not doubt but believe, The most direct way to translate the grammar here would be to say, don't become unbelieving. Trust in me. I don't think what we see here is a slap on the wrist, right? It's it's actually Jesus reassuring Thomas. He's saying, hey, don't descend into cynicism. I'm here. Everything I said is true, and you can trust me. Yes, Lane, but what about the other places in the scriptures where it talks about doubt? Well, this is where our, under, our understanding of doubt and the ancients' understanding of doubt is very different, right? Because we kind of live in this post-enlightenment age of reason where our standard for truth is all evidence-based, right? But the ancient world didn't really think about truth this way. Uh, belief was more about where I put my trust rather than what I thought to be factual. Does that make sense? Many of you probably remember when we went through the book of James, right? And James tackles doubt right at the beginning, in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you is lacking uh, in wisdom, ask God, who gives generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. See, it says it right there, don't doubt. But here's what's interesting. That word doubt in the Greek is the word diakrino which is the concept of being double-minded or being divided in your loyalties. It's actually not about like a cognitive dissonance. It's about where I'm choosing to put my trust. In this, this sense, doubt is not about having questions or admitting that we're confused or that we lack clarity around something or around what God is doing. What James is talking about here is not an issue of logic. It's an issue of loyalty. It's an issue of faithfulness. He's saying, listen, you can't have your feet planted in two different places. You have to have your feet firmly planted on the rock, our lives firmly established on the rock, as Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. Otherwise, when the storm comes, you're going to be blown and tossed by the wind every which way. You've got to put your trust in me. He's saying that following Jesus is not a build-your-own-religion kind of faith. It's wholesale. If we want to experience the fullness of life and joy that comes from Jesus, we have to fully abide in Jesus. We cannot be divided in our loyalties, trusting in Jesus for some things, but then trusting in the world for other things. 
If we want wisdom that the Father gives, we have to abide, draw our life from the vine. Biblical wisdom, God wisdom, is not something that we can study. It's someone that we can know. That's why I want you to write this down. Truth is not an idea. Truth is a person. Truth is not an idea. Truth is a person. So biblically, the problem does not occur when we ask questions. The problem occurs when we lose trust. Faith is not solely about belief, right? Belief is thinking that a chair can support my weight. I can believe that. Great. What did the Bible say? Even the demons believe and shudder. I can practice belief, but it doesn't become faith until I sit in the chair. I can have a degree in chair physics, if that's a thing. But it doesn't become faith until I sit in it. And here's the thing, I can actually exercise really strong faith when my belief is weak. I don't have to understand why the chair will support my weight. It can even look a little rickety from my perspective. I'm like, I don't know if I want to sit on that. But I can still exercise faith and sit in it. I can live a life of trust that says, even though I don't understand what he's asking me to do or not do, I can say yes to him. That's why I always say this. Faith is not the absence of doubt, it is the audacity of trust. Faith is not the absence of doubt, it is the audacity of trust. So it would seem that doubt is not really the problem we think it is. Those of us who are very church, we have a tendency to think about doubt as the boogeyman, right? It's like, though somehow doubt is the enemy of faith. But actually, having the need for faith implies that I will experience doubt, doesn't it? I wouldn't need faith if I didn't have doubt. Many of you know um, Dr. A.J. Soboda, right? He's an author, pastor, professor. He's spoken here a few times. He wrote a book called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. And in it, he writes this. To struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign that we actually have one. I love that. People need a space where they can doubt, where they can ask questions, dare I say where they can, use the D word here, deconstruct. Uh oh. <laughs> Listen, deconstruction in and of itself is not a bad thing. Imagine if Jesus had not helped people deconstruct what they knew to be true of religion. You have heard it said, but truly I tell you. The Sermon on the Mount is filled with deconstruction. <laughs> That's his inaugural address to the kingdom. People need space to ask questions, to poke holes, to call into question the traditions and practices of the church. Because guess what? Sometimes they're right. The Christian church in colonial America was at times complicit and responsible for the enslavement of black people. It took groups of brave people to question the church. And here's the thing. If we are confident that we know the truth, remember, not an idea, but a person, if we're confident that we know the truth in Jesus, we do not need to be afraid of questions. (laughs) The people in my life who have the strongest faith always are the people that have sat in the most difficult questions and circumstances and not avoided them. Always. People need to be able to question and doubt in a safe and resilient community that I know the church can be. I've seen it. Otherwise, young people stop deconstructing and they opt for something else, dismantlement. And that's a problem. Often, if people are asking questions, guys, it's not a bad thing. It's a sign that they're actually looking for Jesus, even if they don't know it. 
we can be the kind of people who are not putting shame on people who have questions, but people who are making an introduction to Jesus, an introduction to the person of truth. I believe that if Jesus were here today and people walked into the church with really big questions, he would extend out his hands and say, trust in me. See the scars. This was for you. Trust in me. I want to read an excerpt out of AJ's book that I just referenced that I think encapsulates this really well. We are seeing a lot of people walk away from their faith right now, but I have a suspicion that there's far more going on than meets the eye. This deconstruction and doubt could actually be a sign of emerging life. I think of it like this. My wife and I grow our own tomatoes. They're good. Proof of God good. When we have people over to our house, sometimes they won't eat the big, ripe, juicy heirlooms we picked 20 minutes earlier. They say that they don't like tomatoes. Then I force them to try our tomatoes. <laughs> I can like hear AJ saying this, right? Which don't taste like fake tomatoes that you get from the grocery store. What I've learned is this. People don't hate tomatoes. People hate fake tomatoes. The truth is, maybe the Christianity so many in our culture today are rejecting isn't Christianity. Often they are rejecting false Christianity. They simply haven't tasted the real Jesus, Jesus yet. Or they have tasted Jesus, and rigid religion has proven to be a poor substitute. Let's be a church that gives people real tomatoes. <laughs> and here's the thing. Tomatoes are fruit, right? The only way to do that is to abide in him. That's how fruit works. My friend Jonathan says that you can't force fruit, right? It's not the microwave dinner of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And the only way to get to fruit is through connection, abiding, remaining, drawing our life from him. So listen, being full of faith is not about being free of questions. It's about being full of trust. We tend to look at Thomas so unfairly. We gave him the, the name Doubting Thomas. But the early church never called him that. <laughs> as far as I can tell, that phrase didn't even come into circulation until like the 17th century. Doubting Thomas. Do you know what the church actually called Thomas? I'll tell you after I tell you this. Jesus tells Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see me and still believe. Now the grammar that Jesus uses here in this statement is debated in academic circles. So take that with a grain of salt. But when we look at the tone of this passage, we ask the question, is it a declaration or is it, um, is it uh, accusation? I think it's a declaration. And I think it holds up because Jesus isn't demoting Thomas here. He's not saying, well, you believed only because you saw me. All these other people that believe and they didn't see me, like they're the, they're the real MVPs. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I think what's happening here is that Jesus is telling him, because I have revealed myself to you in your unbelief, I'm going to use you to share my love with others around you who can't see me, but through you, they will, and they will believe. And I think this actually holds up, because if you look at the epilogue of the story, right after this passage, it says that John writes that these miracles are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is, this is the Great Commission. Jesus revealed himself to us so that we can reveal him to other people, right? You know what the early church called Thomas? The Apostle Thomas was known as the patron saint of India. Tradition holds that it was Thomas who brought the good news of the gospel to India. Because of his courage, because of his loyalty, because of his love, and because of his faith, they were able to learn of the good news 
of the resurrection. So when we look at the story of, of doubt in Thomas, there's usually a, a process that we go through. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to take communion in a minute. But I want to talk to you about this process of doubt. Usually it starts with grief and pain. We're going to throw the stages up there. Here we go. It usually starts with grief and pain. When we experience doubt, it's almost always because underneath that grief and pain, or underneath that question is some kind of grief or pain. So ask yourself, what is the question beneath my question? What is the question beneath my question? And then, in your doubt, there is an invitation from Jesus to know him. That's always Jesus' bottom line. He wants you to know him. He wants to reveal himself to you. He's not shaming you for having questions. He's saying, touch my scars and trust me. And then in, in time, usually not in our time, we usually reveal a new, we are revealed to a new truth about Jesus. And it's usually better than the news we were prepared to believe. It's different than the news we were asking for. And in our epiphanies, in that revelation, in our understanding, it grows our worship of him. The more we learn of Jesus, the more extravagant our worship becomes. Thomas said, my Lord, my God. And then there's healing in that worship. And finally, at the end of this process, there's, almost, there's, there's always a closer relationship with Jesus. He can handle all of your questions as long as he has your trust. He is faithful to us. And if we return that faithfulness, there is a joy that comes in abiding with him. So don't avoid your doubts. Lean in. Because I actually think that Jesus wants to use those doubts to get closer to you. And with that, we're going to come to communion. I say this a lot, so I apologize if it sounds like a broken record. But everything Jesus did, and everything he ever will do in your life, there's one reason for it. He wants to be close to you. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. And that's what the cross was. He wants to be close to us. Maybe you're in this room, and you've been wrestling with a lot of doubts. I don't know if I can believe this Jesus, that he was what the Bible says he was. I don't know if I believe in a creator God. I don't, I don't know. But maybe there's something in you that goes beyond your cognitive processes, and you're actually realizing that you want whatever this Jesus has for you. I want you to know that Jesus can handle your questions and your doubts. Are you ready to trust in him? Are you ready to say, you know what? I'm going to live my life as if you're real. I'm going to choose to believe that you're real despite my doubts. Jesus did everything that he did. He went to the cross and he rose from the grave because he wants you to be with him. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion. And then after the song is over, there's going to be people up here that are ready to pray with you. If you want to make a decision to trust in Jesus for the first time, we'd love to walk through that journey with you to give you resources and to come alongside you and to pray for you. And if you have any other things that you want to pray about, maybe you're experiencing doubts right now. Maybe you're asking really hard questions and you're looking for God in them. We just want to come alongside you and pray with you. Just take a moment and close your eyes. Reflect on what the Spirit has been saying. And bring everything to God today, including your questions.
Jesus, we thank you that when you went to the cross, death itself was defeated. The ashes of our own effort could not prevail. And that when you came to new life, you put death in its grave forever. And that you're inviting us to step into that new life. We thank you for your body broken and your blood spilled that washes us clean. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup, this is my new covenant, my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're going to take a moment to hear this song. If you want to sit and reflect, if you want to stand, everything's welcome in this space. But take some time to invite the Holy Spirit into the conversations that you're having with yourself right now. Let's, let's worship together.